All right. So did any of you get convicted uh, singing? <laughs> um, I did. Is this true? Is this true of you? I mean, you know, we come in here and we sing these songs. And, and all over the world, on this day, the church gathers and they, they sing songs. And it's good that we sing songs. But I wonder how often we're taking in the words. Um, did you notice what we sang? Um, Here I am, take me. <laughs> okay. Is that real? Is that real for you? Is that real for you? Are you really willing to let God have your whole life? All of your life. Not just the Sunday afternoon part. But all of your life. The Word says, here I am, take me as an offering. I'm an offering. I'm a burnt offering, right? I, I'm here only for one reason, right? I live this life for one reason, for the glory of God as an offering before him. Listen to what it says. Did you sing this? <laughs> Did you think about it? <laughs> he says, he says, here I am giving every heartbeat. Okay, I'm asking you, man. Are, are you giving every heartbeat? Yeah, I know that's beautiful prose, but what, what, what I think the Spirit of God would have us do is to think deeply about exactly what it is we're singing. Um, so, I don't know if you got convicted uh, while we were singing, but I did, so I just wanted to share that with you. So, the last three or four times we've been together, we've been talking about how not to wander off from the faith, right? This is what we've been talking about. Professed Christians do it every day. They've been so-called Christians for decades, and then you can't find them. The, you know, the American joke is the FBI can't find them anywhere. You can't, you, the CIA can't find them. They're gone. They never, they never darken the door of the church again. For whatever reason, now they don't believe they need Jesus at all. So this is a common occurrence. Even in the ministry, uh, I've seen it a number of times. Now, if we know our Bibles, we understand that God is sovereign in, in salvation. He's sovereign in salvation. It's all of God, right? But we also know that God causes us, this is what we've been talking about, to exercise our will in obedience to Him. So is God sovereign or is man responsible in, in salvation and sanctification? We've been talking about this. The answer, of course, is yes. God is sovereign. And he holds you responsible to respond to him in obedience. So I'm going to draw this, this series to a close. This will be our last sermon on how not to wander off. And you have to kind of go. I've already referenced this text in uh, one or two of the sermons. But you have to go to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. So you can go ahead and turn there if you would like. Philippians chapter 2, New Testament, um, verses 12 and 13. This passage will help us deal with the tension we feel between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Yes, God saves and sanctifies. There's no question. This is biblically true. And yes, you are responsible to respond by faith in your salvation 
and to be proactive in your sanctification. Both of these things are true. Some of you feel some tension in these two realities. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. So I thought I would begin with this question, and I think you'll understand why. It's a rather impossible question, and the more you think about it, the more impossible it is. So just, I want you to tell me, don't think about it, just tell me. What's your favorite attribute of God? Pardon me? Sovereignty. His sovereignty, okay. I like it. Any others? Somebody else said something. What did you say, Janelo? Did you say something? I said grace of ownership. Grace, of course, grace. We all love the grace, right? Who doesn't love the grace? Any others? Obviously, it's an impossible question. There, there are so many attributes of his. But I'll tell you the one I love that you don't hear people speak of very often. In fact, you don't see many theologians talk about it or write about it. You know what I love about him? Everything, obviously. But I love his mystery. I love his mystery. This is an attribute of God that is not talked about very often. You do know that he's infinitely mysterious. You do know after a billion eternities, you still won't know very much about him. There'll still be an infinite amount uh, to learn about him after a billion eternities. I'm trying to conjure up in your mind and in your heart just how mysterious God is. Uh, yeah, I, I, I love that about him. You know, I've said this to you many times. Why, why, do human rom why does human romance uh, cool? Why does it always cool? You know, you meet somebody, you fall in love, there's all this passion, all this heat, right? Why does it cool? Because you exhaust the mystery. Doesn't mean you don't still, you don't love the person. You, you, you know, I'm, Karen, I mean, you know, she's, she's like, she's, she's married to me. So, I mean, it's just so exciting for her. Right, Karen? <laughs> <laughs> no, but you do. You get to the end of them. There's no mystery. But with God, there, there's always mystery. It's why I like to talk about Christianity in the terms of sacred romance. It is a romance. It really is. Um, God has all the, the things that the human heart desires. Intimacy, beauty, and adventure. Jesus Christ is all of these things. Uh, and if you know him, you understand that he is all of these things. So I love the mystery of God. What's the... Uh, Theological word for it. Anybody know? There's a $2 word for this. Theologians call God inscrutable. Have you heard this word? Inscrutable. What does it mean? He's unfathomable. Uh, he's beyond explanation. He's enigmatic. You know, you know the text. Isaiah 55, 5, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Now, you know this, right? I, I'm always, I never cease to be amazed. People want to question God. They want to call God to account. God's never going to give you an accounting of what he's doing in your life. My thoughts are not your thoughts. He says, neither are my ways your ways. As far as the heaven, heavens are above the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. There's mystery here. It's Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. 
There's going to be some mystery here. And I want us to keep these things in mind. Let me share with you Romans 3, uh, uh, 11.33. Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable his ways. The King James says, His ways are past finding out. They are unsearchable. You can't get to the end of the mind of God. He has an infinite mind. You have a finite mind. And forever he will be pouring his infinite beauty into our hearts and souls. I've told you this before. Some of you are new. You don't know this story. Uh, my, my theology professor uh, in seminary. He was brilliant. He could have made a lot of money in Silicon Valley, but he fell in love with God and he decided to teach people like me theology. And uh, brilliant guy. And uh, we would always sit in class and we would just, every once in a while, we'd have a Q&A and, and guys would be firing off these questions at him, right? And and what he would do is he would, he would, he would stand at the front of the class and he would start to smile, and we all knew what that meant. You know, when he started to smile, we knew what that meant. Because somebody would ask a question that God doesn't directly speak to in the Bible. And there are 10,000 questions like this. God doesn't explain himself, right? He's revealing himself. He doesn't explain himself. So some smart the, uh, theology student asked the professor, what about this? And he'd get the smile on his face. You know what he would say? This is the most important thing I learned from him. You know what he would say? I don't know. He'd get a big smile on his face. He'd say, I don't know. And then we would all worship. We don't know. There's a lot we don't know. This is not a, an admission of uh, lack of intellect or, or learning here. There's much about God we don't know. And I say to you as Practicing Christians embrace this, love this. You don't have to explain God to anybody. One, because you can't. Okay, you cannot fully explain God to anyone. He's infinitely mysterious. You, got, you need to learn this. You need to know this. You need to love this. Because he is beloved. He is mysterious. Yes, Jesus Christ is knowable. He has revealed himself. And yes, Jesus Christ is knowable, but he is infinitely mysterious. And there are many things he reveals in Scripture that create some havoc <laughs> in the human brain, create some tension. And Philippians 12 and 13 would be one of those. So, yeah. The Bible is not an explanation. It is simply a revelation. So let me ask you this. Was the Bible written by God or was it written by man? What's the answer? Yes. Yes is the answer. Is Jesus Christ God or is Jesus Christ man? What's the answer? Yes. Is the answer. Is God one or is God three? What is the answer? Yes. This is why my theology professor, he just smiles all the time. He can't explain it. It's just a revelation. Does God choose man or does man choose God? What does the Bible say? Yes. 
it's Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Is salvation and sanctification all of God? Or are we called to cooperate in it? Yes, it's all of God. And it involves all of us. And if it doesn't involve all of you, then I'll say what I said to you last week. You have every reason to question your assurance of salvation. You have to be all in with Christ. You can't be half in. There's no place in the New Testament where you can see that you can be half in. You cannot be half in. No disciple is ever half in. We're all in or we're not in. Salvation and sanctification is all of God, and it involves all of you. This is Philippians 2, 12 and 13. So a couple of questions before we get into the text. Where does faith come from? You should know this. Where does it come from? Pardon me? Okay. From the Word of God, right? Ultimately, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us where it comes from. We are saved by faith. It is, Ephesians 2.8, the gift of God. It's a gift of God. If you have genuine saving faith, it was a gift from God. You didn't figure it out. You know, there's, a, there's kind of a, when you're first coming to Jesus, you kind of think, well, I'm figuring this out and I'm finding God. And then when you study the Bible, you realize God was finding you. <laughs> God was coming to you. God was giving you faith. You know, the faith didn't uh, hatch within you. God planted it there. So we learned that. And what does faith do? We, we, we talk about this all the time. What does real faith do? So it comes from God. What does it do? It does the word, right? It does the word. That's what. Real faith does. You guys know James chapter 2. Without, without, faith without works is what? Dead. What else does he say? It's what? Useless. What else does he say? He says Satan believes like that. It's like demon faith. Satan believes. All the demons believe. They, they believe the facts. He says it's like, it's like the demons. If you say you have faith in Christ, but your life doesn't change... He says, it's like demon faith. So what does faith do? And we talked about it last week. I just want to reiterate this. Colossians chapter 3, 1 and 2, it keeps seeking the things above. Are you, are you seeking the things above? Real faith sets its mind on the things above. Are you setting your mind on the things above? Real faith lays aside the old self and puts on the new self. This is what we saw in Colossians chapter 3. How do you keep from wandering off? You do these things. You're cooperating with the Holy Spirit in your sanctification. You're seeking the things above. You're looking at them. You desire them. You hunger and thirst for them. So let, let me just read the text. Just a couple of verses tonight. Philippians chapter 2 verse 12. So then, Paul writes, My beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Here, here it comes. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will 
and to work for his good pleasure. So why does Paul begin here with so then? That's my translation, the New American Standard, so then. Simply, he's drawing a conclusion from what he just said about Jesus. You know this famous passage here, the, the, the three or four verses that precede verse 12 here, that Jesus uh, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. He became a bondservant. He humbled himself and obeyed to the point of death. And basically, Paul is saying, this is what, this is what Christians do. So then, you should be like this. You should be like this. And you have always obeyed, look what he says, not only in my presence, but even in my absence. Paul is commending them. They're not just performing. It's a lifestyle, right? It's what we've been talking about for the last three or four times we've been together. Christianity is always a lifestyle. It's not, it's not just a set of propositional truths. I believe these ten things about Jesus. Yeah, you believe 10 plus things about Jesus. But if your faith is real, it's not just simply believing 10 right things about Jesus. It's, it's every day getting up, laying off, putting off the old self and picking up the new self, right? As we've been talking about the last few weeks. So what are the implications here? What's he talking about to the Philippians? You're obeying, he says. Why do they obey? For the praise of Paul? No, they love Christ. That's the implication. They love him. You know, if you love him, Jesus says, what did he say? If you love me, what? You'll go to church when it's not too inconvenient. He never says that. You know, he never calls anybody to be a church member, ever. He says, if you love me, you'll do what I say. That's always the test. None of us do it perfectly, of course. But we have this taste. We talked about it last week. We have a taste for it. We have this taste to obey Jesus, to make Jesus real and present in our lives. We're not into pleasing men. We're into pleasing God. So Paul says something here that gets your average Protestant. Now we're Protestants in here. Get your average Protestant in a knot. Can you see it in the text? What does he say that would get your average Protestant in a knot. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, your average, even slightly biblically literate evangelical would say, now, wait a minute, Paul. I thought we were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. What's Paul saying here? Why is the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write these words about working out our salvation. Let me just say this before I go further into that. Every time you open the Bible, it is imperative that you seek to rightly divide the word. Now, we know there are, there are, there are a legion of false teachers in the world. They'll take a text out of context, and it's always a pretext. That was clever, wasn't it, Rohan? Rohan liked it. I can see it. So it's always a pretext for false teaching, right? Your job, my job, rightly divide the word. What is Paul saying here? You know, sweat over the text sometimes. You know, when I get into predestination and election with some people, it's like, you know, they, it just blows their mind. They've never been taught this, although it's explicit in the Bible. 
And I say, you know, just go sweat over the text. Spend some time with the text. Ask God what it says. Ask the Holy Spirit what it says. Don't go listen to some man. Don't even listen to me. Unless you can see what I'm saying confirmed in the pages of Scripture. So, Satan has always sought to pervert every single truth in the Bible. There's always a ditch on either side of a truth. Always. There's always a ditch on both sides. Such has been the case with this historical teaching regarding salvation and sanctification. Some have said that in salvation and sanctification, man is the determining factor. He's the driving force. And what I want to say to you is that's one ditch. Others have erroneously said that in salvation and sanctification, man is passive. Well, if we understand our Bibles, we understand that's another ditch. If we only read verse 12, we think Paul's in the first ditch. If we only read verse 13, we think Paul's in the second ditch. If we read the verses together, we realize he's stating biblical truth that involves a little bit of tension for the finite mind. This is good. You know, <laughs> if there's mystery, you have some assurance that you're understanding it. You have some assurance that you're on the right track because God is mysterious. Let there be mystery. Love the mystery. Enjoy the mystery. So is salvation and sanctification all of God or must man be active in it? What's the answer? Yes, it's all of God. Salvation is all of God. But you must respond in faith and you must respond in obedience. It, it, it's all of God and it involves all of you. This is what we've been talking about for the last three or four or five times we've been together. You, won't, you will not wander off if this is true of you. If what God has done in your heart is pouring out into your life, you won't wander off because it'll be dynamic. It'll be ongoing. I love how John MacArthur says this famous American preacher. He says, it's all of God and it's all of us. So let me ask you, you know, we sang it in the song, right? Whatever I did with the words. You know, I, I give my life to you. Every what? Heartbeat? Really? Really? You know, we can't consciously do that. Um, that's impossible for us with our finite minds to consciously give every heartbeat to God uh, as, they, as the heart beats. But you can do it at a point in time. My life is yours. My hands are open. I, I, I'm making no demands on you, God. I'm setting no constraints on what you call me to do. This can be real for us. This is an Old Testament reality. 1 Kings 8:58. Don't turn there, but let me just read quickly to you what Solomon says. Listen to him. He says, May the Lord our God incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments. So it looks like maybe Solomon is in the second theological ditch, that man is passive. A few verses later, he says, Let your heart therefore be wholly devoted to the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments. 
Now it seems like Solomon is in the first theological ditch. He's saying man is determinative. What do we understand from the text? The same thing we understand from Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Both of these things are true. God is sovereignly at work, and you're called to respond. It's just biblical Christianity, beloved. It's simply biblically, uh, biblical Christianity. So, is sanctification something God is doing or something we're doing? We know the answer to the question. We've been talking about it for three or four or five weeks now. The answer is yes. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You've already heard me say this in this series. Again, I'm quoting John MacArthur, famous American preacher. You want assurance of your salvation? You want to be sure you never wander off from Jesus Christ? You want to be sure? Then you'll be working out what God has worked in. This will be a reality in your life. This won't be theoretical. It won't be academic. It'll be ongoing. You'll see it happening in your life. You'll be proactive in it, right? You will be proactive in it. The Christian is never passive. This is non-biblical sub-Christian, this is a non-biblical sub-Christian ditch. People who say they're Christians and the only evidence you ever see of their so-called Christianity is the fact that they will show up for a church sometime. Other than that, there's absolutely no evidence in their life. There's no real devotion going on. There's no, there's no real uh, being immersed in the Word. There's no sitting under the preached Word. There's no uh, using of your gifts in the body. All the things we talked about last week. There's no, you know, putting off the flesh and putting on the, the things of God. That's not happening. It's not happening. Obviously, this is a huge problem. We know what Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.12. What did he say? Lay hold of the t eternal life to which you've been called. You've got to put your hands on your Christianity and live it, Right? You won't wander off if you're doing this. You won't one day find yourself isolated from the church because you've left. It won't happen if you've laid hold of it, if it's real for you. You will be persevering. That great biblical word. The Christian is called and commanded to work out what God has worked in. This is not salvation by works. This is salvation by grace through faith being manifested in the life. It's James chapter 2. You guys know the famous song. I always bring it up. I guess it's famous, at least at ICM. Sarah Grove sings this song. She says, something changed in me. And what happened? It broke open and spilled out. The change spilled out into my life. So again, I want to say we are not saved by works. We're Protestants. We haven't fallen into that error. We are not saved by works. I'm going to read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 to you again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? That you can't boast. Now, about half the uh, testimonies I hear it sounds like this person is boasting, you know? Well, if we, if we understand salvation and sanctification from a biblical perspective, there is no boasting. God did it. God did it. If you're a Christian, God did it. Yes, you must respond. God did it. 
Beloved, you need to get this right. If you're confused about this, you need to sort this out biblically. You are, you are denying God the glory He deserves in your salvation if you don't fully understand He did it. You didn't find Him. He came for you. There's a huge difference here in how you think and how you worship and how you love and how you submit to the Word of God. Okay, one more John MacArthur quote. Listen to this. I love this. Philippians 2.12 is not saying we must work for or work at or work up our salvation. The text says you must work it out. You want to make sure that you never wander off? You want to make sure that you have assurance of your salvation? Work it out. If it's not at work, you have every reason to question the legitimacy of your profession of faith. 2 Peter 1, 3-7, listen to what he says. Seeing that God's divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, then he says this, apply it with all diligence. God has granted it, you apply it. This is Christianity. You know, showing up for church and leaving and never thinking about Christ, but again until next Sunday, this is, this is completely alien to the biblical concept of Christianity. So God has done the God thing within us. He's done the God thing, and then He tells you to do the disciple thing. Right? God... God borns again His people. He regenerates His people. He brings life where there was none. He circumcises the heart, right? He does this. So God does what He does, and then He tells you and me to go and be a disciple. So I'm just going to ask you, are you? Don't... <laughs> if you're not a disciple, you're not a Christian. If you're, you may be a churchgoer. Jesus has called us. What did he say? He didn't say, hey, join a church and come when you can. What did he say? He says, follow me. That's what he says. Follow me. So at the university, at your work, in your neighborhood, in your family, is Christ clearly seen because you follow him? Beloved, it's what the, it's what, it's what the New Testament is saying to us, I think Philippians 2, 12 and 13 is very, very clear. There's three dimensions here. just want to make this point. There are three dimensions to biblical salvation. This is kind of a little bit weird to some people, but I think if you think about it, uh, you may have heard it before, but if you haven't, if you think about it, you'll understand it. We are saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. This is how conservative, sound theologians talk about Salvation. You were saved in a point in time. You are being saved right now. You will be saved when you see him. You will be like him, right? You know the, the text in 1 John. When we see him, we will be like him. I love how Romans 13, 11 says it. Listen to this. For now your salvation is nearer than when you first believe, right? It is nearer than when we first began so does God hold the believer secure in his hand by a sovereign power 
Or must the Christian persevere working out what God has worked in? What's the answer? You know it. Yes. Yes. This is biblical truth. Let me give you two quotes from Jesus. Sovereignty, responsibility, okay? John 10, 28 and 29. Jesus says, My Father has given me my sheep. He's given them to me. No one can snatch them out of my hand or out of my Father's hand. That's God's sovereignty, right? Listen to Jesus in Matthew 24, 13. The one who endures to the end shall be saved. Jesus is teaching exactly what Paul is teaching. God is sovereign in it, and it involves all of you. You must persevere. You must persevere. You know, I know you've, you've seen this. I, if you've been in the church very long, you see people who are completely, what's the word I'm looking for? Cavalier about their profession of faith. Yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian, but you run into them in the world and they, they talk like the world, they act like the world, they love what the world loves, they're pursuing what the world pursues. Right? Yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, yeah, I, I'll make it to church on Easter, I'm sure. If not, I'll, I'll be there Christmas. Yeah, I know, the, I know God will be pleased. Listen, don't blaspheme God like that. If that's... If, don't, don't blaspheme God. Don't call yourself a Christian if, if that's all you are. You're either a disciple or you're an unbeliever. Okay? Beloved, I, I, I preach this way because these things really matter. <laughs> these things matter more than anything else can possibly matter. It matters what our standing is before God. So, God is electing us, holding us, sanctifying us, and keeping us saved? Yes. Are we called to repent, believe, place our faith in Jesus, and persevere to the end? Yes. The Bible is crystal clear. The believer is called to work out what God has worked in. Now, I'm not going to go there for the sake of time, but in the book of Revelation, nine times, go read it, Jesus uses the word overcomer. You have to be an overcomer. I won't give you all the texts. If you want them, email me. I'll send you my notes. Just for the sake of time, I won't go through all of them. The overcomer doesn't wander off. The overcomer, what does the overcomer do? Tell me what the overcomer does. Does anybody know? He overcomes. <laughs> he doesn't wander off. He doesn't lose his faith. Right? He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't become more interested in the world than he is in Christ. Christ is his preeminent interest, his preeminent devotion, his preeminent passion. Go read Revelation about the overcomer. And as Philippians 1.6 says, God will complete the good work he's begun in you, God's sovereignty. And then you got to love Philippians 3, 12, 12, where Paul says, listen to what Paul says, way better Christian than you. How many agree with that? Way better Christian than me, the Apostle Paul. Okay. He says, I press on. So I'm going to ask you, are you pressing on? 
You won't wander off if you're pressing on. But if you leave off pressing on, yeah, you probably will wander off at some point. It may be a decade, it may be two, it may be three. But if it's not real to you, you'll ultimately bail. It will happen. I'm an old man. I've seen it many, many times. The most shocking, the, the, it will just be shocking to you as you get my age to see how many people you thought were Christians who just walked off. You want to make sure you, you're an overcomer? <laughs> we, we, we've been talking about it the last couple of weeks. It's, it's Colossians chapter 3. It's Philippians chapter to listen to Paul, I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of. Right? Man, this is beautiful stuff. This is beautiful stuff. So when it comes to salvation and sanctification, God is sovereign. And you are and I am Responsible. So let me talk just a moment. We're about done. Let me talk just a moment about the, uh, the fear of the Lord here. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. What is this about? Well, okay. I, you guys know I'm writing a book right now, and it's about the fear of God, and, 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 and I'm loving it. And I, I've, I've shared this with you, but I, I feel compelled to share it again. You know, the six or eight or ten guys that saw him unveiled to at least some degree they all did the same thing. Now, what did these six or eight or ten guys do when they got an, uh, an unencumbered glimpse of Jesus Christ, the glorified Christ? Does anybody, you've heard me say it a number of times, what, all ha what did they do? All of them did exactly the same thing. What did they do? They got as flat as they could get, as fast as they could get. Okay? We, we need to take a lesson here, right? We need to take a lesson here. God is other. He's other. He's God and he's other. He's supernatural. He's like no other being you've ever seen. He's holy and we're not apart from Christ. Every man, these were, these were prophets and apostles. Every man that saw him, bam, instinctively, reflexively, they were on their face as fast as possible. Does that give you some sense? I hope it gives you some sense of what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. We fear the Lord in a proper, balanced, healthy sort of way, a reverential awe sort of way. And I love, like one theologian said, one of my favorite guys, a um, good friend of mine, this, this is what I want to say to you. The Christian rightly fears God without dreading God. Do you understand? We fear God without dreading God. Now the unbeliever, what will the unbeliever do when Jesus comes in glory? You know what the text says, right? In Revelation, what will happen? They want the mountains to crush them to death so they don't have to face the angry lamb. Now we'll be in awe, but we won't be in dread. I think this is an important distinction I hope that helps you just a little bit. And by the way, if you want this, I'm not going to give it to you, you know. But if you want this, I'll send it to you. There are eight promises in the Bible for those who fear God. There are beautiful promises, trust me. 
You will want to take advantage of these promises. You want to be a recipient of these promises. Uh, I'm not going to give them to you just for the sake of time. If you want them, if you'll email me, I will send them to you. So this is a poor analogy. It's an, ex an exceedingly poor analogy. But the child who is loved has a healthy fear of the loving parent when the child has disobeyed. I still remember this. I remember my dad coming after me. I, I was running from him. I knew this was not good. Not only what I had done was not good, but running was not good. I knew it. Of course, he got me. And yeah, there was, there was a proper amount of fear. And, and, and yes, he spanked me. I know this is evil now in the modern um, culture, but I got spanked. And my children got spanked. I know it's bad. I know I'm evil. I know I'm an abuser. I know I should be in jail. But listen to what God says about it. You want to hear what God says about it? Hebrews 12, 7 through 8. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not discipline? Those whom... Uh, those without discipline are illegitimate and not son. But listen to, not a son, but listen to Proverbs 13, 24. Do you hate your children? Listen to this. <laughs> those of you who don't have them yet, think about it. He who withholds his rod hates his son. Now, I, my dad didn't hate me. My mother didn't hate me. They disciplined me. They taught me respect for authority and a respect for their word. Which is, you know, you, know what that, you know what that is when a parent teaches their child that? You know what that is, right? You know what? You're just teaching your child to what? Respect God's authority and respect God's word. Obviously, people, human beings, can be despicable and they can go too far. I get that, but that's not what the Bible's talking about. He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently diligently. So those of you who have children and will one day have children you might want to consider what God's word has to say. And there's another aspect of this fear. What is it? What, can you imagine if I gave you a few minutes, you could think about it. Another aspect of this fear, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's a fear of sin, right? It's the fear of, of sin uh, in my life. I, I still remember the, the mentor that I was mentioning earlier. I still remember one day he told me, he said, Jim, I, you know, he, he was a minister. He was famous. He or at least he was well known. Uh, he'd done many great things. Uh, he was he was highly esteemed and thought of. He said, man, I could sin tomorrow. And I thought, what? You got to know this about yourself. You got to know that you're a sinner. You got to know you're prone to sin. You got to be careful, man. You got to you got to you got to cut yourself off from those portals of temptation. This is one thing that I think the text is saying. It's a healthy fear against sin in our lives because we don't want to offend our father. We don't want to grieve the spirit. We don't want to lose our joy. We don't want to lose our testimony. We don't want to negate effective ministry in our lives. So we have a healthy fear of God. It's just natural for the born again man or woman. So the Holy Spirit is keeping us out of theological ditches tonight. 
I, I think that Philippians 2, 12, and 13 are hugely important for us to understand. Is salvation and sanctification all of God? The Bible says yes. Does salvation and sanctification involve all of you? The Bible says yes. Some struggle with the tension here. Some call it a paradox. I don't struggle with it. I just bow to it and I worship God for it. I praise God that he is holding me because if I left to myself, I wouldn't last to the end of the day. And I praise him that I've been enabled by the spirit to exercise my will in obedience. So let's close like this. A couple of questions for you and we're done. Are you proactively working out what God has worked into your lives? What is God calling you to do tonight? What habit is he calling you to break? What attitude does he want you to change? What sin does he want you to forsake? What wrong does he want you to make right? What relationship does he want you to mend? What obedience is he exhorting you to? What ministry is he want, does he want you to do in the body? And what act of radical faith is he calling you to? This is your responsibility to respond to God's call. So let's end like this. Philippians 3, Paul says, probably a better Christian than you. I know he's a better Christian than me. He says, I press on this. So I'm, this is, I'm done. I'm asking you, are you pressing? Are you pressing? Let's finish like this. So I press on, Paul says, in order that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. You want to make sure? The title of this sermon is How Not to Wander Off, Part 4. You want to make sure you never wander off? Do what the Apostle Paul's doing here. Press on. Press on with God. Never stop pressing on with God. You be an overcomer. You be one of the, the, uh, one of the overcomers in Revelation. The nine times, I think it's nine, that, that God mentions it. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. We thank you that your spirit keeps us out of the ditch. We understand that you are sovereign. We understand that we are responsible. So, Lord, thank you that we don't have to guess. We don't have to be unclear. We don't have to be in suspense. We understand what you say. This is not hard. It is not complicated. It is not difficult. If we are to have assurance... We will be pressing. We will be pressing on. We will be persevering. We will be overcoming. Thank you, Father, that you hold us and that you will never lose us. And thank you, Father, that you've called us to love you in and through our obedience. Thank you, Father, for it is our deep joy to love and obey you like this. We give all glory and honor and praise to the name of Jesus. It is in His name that we pray. Amen.